Hi, welcome to Discourse, the Religious Studies Project's take on the news. Uh, so I'm Vivian Asimos, and uh, today I am joined with Michael Monick and Alid Thomas. So Michael, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, thanks. I'm Michael Monick, and I'm a lecturer in Social Science Theories and Methods at Cardiff University, and I work with the Centre for the Study of Islam in the UK. All right, and Alid? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's uh, Alad, and I'm a visiting fellow at the Open University. I specialize in the study of contemporary religions, uh, specifically Scientology. Uh, and I'm Vivian, and I study virtual storytelling and uh, online religiosity of various sorts. Um, and I'm with Durham University at the moment. So uh, thank you both for joining me. We have quite a lot uh, that we all brought forward. So I thought maybe we would start with one of the ones that Michael brought. Um, do you have, do you want to talk about whichever ones you feel the most kind of? Sure. Well, I guess it's that question about topicality uh, versus, um, you know, the, the immediateness of it, but in podcasts, they live forever. So maybe we can uh, look a little bit further back. I was really intrigued at the start of the month to see an article by Alex Morris about uh, Donald Trump and the the evangelical Christian right in the United States. Um, on the one hand, it was maybe that kind of very predictable take that we've seen, I guess, really in the last four years uh, as his ascendancy first in the campaign trail and then uh, uh, getting the, the candidacy went about why this person who seems not to project the imagery that we would associate with Christian values, family values and whatnot would be so supported. Uh, but what made this story for me really interesting, well, two things. One was that it was in Rolling Stone that they would give that much real estate to it, uh, but also how the journalist Alex Morris really brought her personal story into it. And that is one of someone's journey from having grown up in that American evangelical Christian uh, Southern United States approach, uh, moving out of that without moving out of Christianity. So foregrounding her own personal characteristics initially connects to a lot of my own research interests about the religious dimensions of the subjectivity of a journalist uh, and, and when and why that is put forward in the journalism they create. Should I throw to a question at that point or should I keep going wittering on about my thoughts on the piece? Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. Cause I'm, I'm scrolling through it at the moment. Um, mm. And I, I mean, I, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it interests me that the journalist felt compelled to share of herself in that way. And in a way that I think, you know, I, I, I used to work as a journalist in Canada. I worked for Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for eight years and I did my first degree in journalism. So you definitely get that kind of long soak of, um, you know, the, this myth of objectivity and the role of the journalist as the unattached observer. And, that that was really felt to be important for how we imagined our own profession. Uh, so I nonetheless think that we've seen a change and maybe it's the, the social media narratives that are coming into this. Maybe it is just uh, a lot of things regarding technological advances that allow us to just get news so much more quickly and so much more fully that interpretation becomes the, the, the distinguishing factor that 
journalists maybe are talking more and more about who they are, their connection to the story. You'll get that kind of personal feeling, maybe, you know, an emotional response from the journalist when they're covering a tragedy or something like that, how they bring their person into it. So uh, I was interested, though not surprised to see her foregrounding this and then creating this, um, not a confrontation, but the last set of interviews that she brings forward in this piece. And it comes rather dramatically at the climax of the story is sitting, uh, returning to Alabama to sit with her mother and her aunt and just ask them why they feel the way they do, how they can justify their values with what they see in Donald Trump and try to personalize uh, the stories that we've heard a lot of think pieces about, you know, how do you square that circle? Um, so there are interesting details that I liked about it. You know, uh, towards the end, we get the sense of a dimly lit room with a bottle of red wine. My mom, my aunt and I pull our chairs close. I explain that I'm taping a conversation that I love and respect them. And that I want to discuss why my Christianity has led me away from Trump and theirs has led them to him. I thought it'd be a really important paragraph in the midst of the piece. Uh, there's certain things she's signaling in there, right? I mean, the bottle of wine is a signal to perhaps your expected Rolling Stone readership to say, this isn't quite as, you know, exaggerated fundamentalist as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. we, we drink alcohol. <laughs> uh, um, and then really putting forward, appropriating that my Christianity, which has led me away from Trump and your Christianity mm -hmm. has led you to him. And so this, the similarity, but leading in different ways, I think, I mean, f as religious scholars, we'll talk a lot about, the diversity within religious tradition and clamping down on this idea of religion being a monolithic culture that everyone who's in it has more or less the same values going forward. So it is exposing a diversity within Christianity that objectively we know about, but now we're seeing that play out in the personal drama of one family in one living room in, uh, in Alabama. What, what you're saying as well is very interesting um, in that it reflects a uh, lived religion understanding of Christianity in relation to Donald Trump that the the piece is being taken to the um to, to the conversation over a bottle of wine in that it's the reaction to Donald Trump on the ground to use that phrase rather than mm -hmm. um from a political analyst's point of view or even from a, a scholar of religions uh perspective it's getting that um notion from real people and real people's reaction to Trump. Um, I think it also kind of ties in with a lot of um, Trump's approach to um, um, tr tr Trump's approach to doing politics in, in the way that he does is that he's got this whole um, perspective. I'm, I'm going to drain the swamp. And he seems to have attracted people based on this idea that he is anti-establishment despite being a billionaire. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment with a piece that uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up. But um, it's it's it, there's this emphasis on working people taking back control, to use that phrase that's been thrown around as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see the piece from the perspective of um, the writer's own opinion rather than the writer reporting on what she has learned. She's rather uh, giving her own experience, but also bringing in the experience of a family member. It's, uh, it's 
drawing on that idea of, okay, we're the people on the ground. We're not the establishment. We're not an institution. We're not institutional Christianity. We are two people who identify as Christians, but we have fundamentally different approaches to Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I see this in uh, the the conversation gets down towards the environment and the author, you know, do you think that Jesus is coming soon that the environment doesn't matter? I eventually ask, which is a very uh, pressing element for a lot of uh, people in that tradition. He's Alex, the earth is going to be all burned up anyway, my aunt says quietly. It's in the Bible. But according to billions of people, the Bible is not necessarily true. So uh, Alex is kind of doing two different things here. She's advocating on the one hand for uh, a sense of faith-driven stewardship as opposed to uh, a concern not for this world, but for the world hereafter. Uh, But then her response to the answer you would maybe expect to hear is to say that a lot of people for whom Trump's policies matter, this isn't important to them. Uh, Trying to simultaneously argue her perspective, which is informed by faith, but also defend the many people in the United States who are affected by the things and aren't informed by faith. Um, I'm not sure if that strategy is a useful one in these conversations. Uh, I'm not sure what you think about that. It's definitely kind of a, it's interesting to read a journalist approach to something like this because it is so similar to the way that, uh, you know, and, and kind of academic study to the approach to the study of religion or even just anthropologists and sociologists in general would approach a subject matter. Um, and it kind of sometimes is reading how when I sit down with like, you know, first and second years and I say, how would you start interviewing people and the kinds of questions they come up with versus the kinds of questions that someone much more experienced in interviewing might come up with because we're trying when we're doing our kind of academic uh, anthropological approach, we're trying not to imbue our own meanings and understandings into the questions because um, that's kind of not what we're trying to get at. But obviously in, in this approach, you kind of want to get her own imbued meanings in the questions. So it is kind mm. of, a, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of strange to read from the both, from both perspectives, really. It was interesting. I did a bit of a look uh, on Twitter to see who the journalist was and how she was promoting the, the piece. And a, a couple of things really stood out to me after she tweeted the, the, the day the article went live. There were a lot of comments on it, but overwhelmingly supportive um, from people who would fit, you know, would take care in their tweet responses to either foreground their Christianity, which is not like that right wing evangelical Trump supporting approach, or someone who had grown up in that space but moved to a more uh, left-leaning Christianity or someone who had began that space and left Christianity entirely from an atheistic perspective, all of them endorsing her saying, yes, you got the spot on. This is the best thing I've read about, uh, this facet of Donald Trump entirely. Um, you know, and people intoning CS Lewis and Rachel held Evans, uh, and, Alex Morris really going along with that and feeling, you know, the comparison to Hell Evans' real compliment or that, you know, C.S. Lewis would do this far better than I would. So really wearing that position within Christian spaces, uh, it didn't let up in her public, more spontaneous responses to these things. So while we're kind of on the subject of 
um, the role of religion and particularly of certain Christian ideologies in relation to Trump, I thought maybe now would be a good time to move on to one of Alad's articles. Yes. Um, shall I get on my high horse? Uh, uh, please do. <laughs> please. Um, okay. Uh, well, for a few months now, I've been really, really interested in the um, increased use of cultic language in the political landscape. Um, as I'm sure many uh, of the, uh, listeners know, that um, the use of the word cult is uh, generally seen as a bit of a faux pas in the study of new religions, in that it's a heavily loaded term. And uh, the approach I like to take is that there's a cult is simply a movement that you don't like. It's a very uh, subjective um, notion. Um, but I was very pleased to see uh, just a few weeks ago that Ben Zeller published a blog post on the religion and politics uh, blog called The Cult of Trump, What Cult Rhetoric Actually Reveals. And in this, he reflects on the fact that um, Stephen Hassan, one of the um, the most prolific anti-cultist writers, is releasing a book soon called The Cult of Trump, A Leading Cult Expert Explains How the President Uses Mind Control. And of course, the <laughs> most interesting part of this is the idea of mind control and the fact that Trump is capable of it. Um, the, and uh, Zeller reflects on this and uh, the fact that mind control is tied in with the brainwashing debate, which has long been debunked in academic uh, and social scientific circles in that, um, particularly the work of uh, Eileen Barker with the Unification Church in the 1980s, um, that there isn't significant evidence to suggest that brainwashing is something that happens. But what's especially interesting about Stephen Hassan's uh, work, and this is what uh, Ben Zeller gets at, is that it's not so much about the idea of brainwashing, it's about the language being used to dismiss political ideas. So he reflects on the fact that Donald Trump has 63 million votes. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean those 63 million people are hopelessly devoted to um, Donald Trump, but, um, but at the same time, he has a core fan base that is significantly larger than any new religious movement, or let's call them cult for the sake of this, uh, for the sake of this point. Um, he has a significantly larger following than any cult that we could, uh, think of in our studies. And, uh, as Ella says that Trump appeals to the power of tribalism and the fears of others, uh, benefiting at America's expense. So while this is more about patriotism than it is about, uh, religiosity. There's a, uh, as he says, there's a parallel between religious ideas such as us, them, inside or outsider, good and evil, and so on. Um, so what I think is really interesting at the moment is that politics has become so heated and um, aggressive language is being used on so many sides of a debate to uh, dismiss the validity of others. Um so to bring the point over to uh, Britain, for example, uh, to fill our listeners in, we are recording this four days after the results of the 2019 general election. Um, there was a very interesting tweet 
uh, shortly after the election results from Anna Soubry, who is a former Conservative candidate. And she said, and I quote, Just to remind everyone, this election was called by the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, fueled by tribalism and Kool-Aid when a people's vote was within our grasp. And that reference to Kool-Aid is uh, referring to the Jonestown murder-suicide massacre in 1978, uh, it refers to the cyanide that uh, members of the People's Temple uh, consumed uh, during that murder-suicide. So that's a very colourful and inflammatory use of language, at least in my opinion, to uh, describe people on the other side of the debate as her, um, to, to use that idea. But also the idea of the of the phrase of taking the Kool-Aid is to immediately dismiss someone else's ideas as being irrational, that if somebody is taking Kool-Aid, then they have left their senses. And not only have they left their senses, they are doing something that's causing themselves harm and other people harm. Um, and there's a lot of examples of this. Um, Alan Johnson, the former Labour MP, also said a couple of days ago, that um, the momentum campaign, which backs Jeremy Corbyn, is a little cult, uh, which dismisses their ideas. It dismisses them as a fringe group with radical ideas that's irrational to the norm. And um, he also wrote an article for the Daily Mail, which he ended with, do not underestimate momentum's determination to remain as a party within a party. Either we get rid of that cult or we become the cult ourselves. So he's using that cultic language to not only describe momentum as something potentially dangerous, but something that could be that could eventually turn the Labour Party into something poisonous as well. Um, there, there are lots of examples of this of the past few months, and I've really, as a scholar of NRMs, I've been keenly following this use of cultic language, and it's it tends to be used as a form of dismissing other perspectives, at least in my idea. Do you think that this is down to uh, the the absolutely charged and unparty-driven quality of Brexit itself, that it has split up these two general camps, your Labour, your Conservative, that people could identify with? If you were Labour, it didn't tell you necessarily anything about your attitude towards Brexit and the membership of the European Union, just as it was with Tory. And so people had to find ways to make sense of this. Well, we want to talk about cognitive dissonance that's going on in there, that, that they need to somehow understand why people that they ought to be agreeing with, they're disagreeing with and quite passionately. Yes, I think there's definitely a divide in Britain at the moment that has become, as you were saying, has become a an almost violent disagreement. Um, but to come back to the example of Anna Soubry, who was a former Conservative member, she quit the party over their support of Brexit. So as you were saying, whether you're a Conservative or a Labour member now, it doesn't necessarily tell you what your perspective is on this uh, on this quite a controversial topic now, I think. Um, so yes, I think the Brexit debate is certainly... Um, fed into that cultic narrative of immediate dismissal of the other side's point of view. But I also think it's the same as well with Trump, Trumpism over in America. There's a parallel between the two, not just of the fact that they kind of emerged at the same time, but the hostility that they have bred 
one way or another between the pro and the anti camp. I was just thinking the other thing that it seems to me striking about using this cultic language, and that is that the often the, the people who are most aggressively pitched at labeling a particular group as a cult are those who are proximate to those traditions. Um, it's like the question of heresy being worse than uh, um, interreligious uh, conflicts because it's your own people who are interpreting your values and scriptures and truths differently. Um, so that, you know, if you think about how, you know, Christians responded to Mormonism as it was uh, coming up through where other groups may be very relaxed about it and say, well, you know, Mormonism is, it isn't Christianity. It kind of doesn't matter. Let's just think about, you know, getting on with other issues. Uh, that definitional question is most important to the people who lose by having it admitted. And so it's that internal debate that brings the passions out. And maybe that's, again, just that 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 sense that the stability of your political home is being called into question. And that's what leads to these analogous language uh, of really vilifying those people from within who don't fit your vision of what's important. Yes, I I agree. Um and it's it's also that element of um what what Naomi Klein describes as uh shock politics in that mm. um politics has become unpredictable in recent years after arguably years of centrism. And that and that has shaken the foundations of many people who felt that they had a sense of belonging in the Labour Party or in the Conservative Party. The example of Alan Johnson's a good one in that he was a very prominent Labour MP who is now highly critical of the party, and this has drawn out that cultic language in him, in that the Labour Party is now becoming something that he doesn't recognise anymore, therefore it's cultic. It's that mm-hmm. idea of a cult being something, a movement that you simply don't like in that. And, but also a cult is something that is other. It's other to the, uh, to the norm, to what you're used to, and perhaps to what you approve of. And that's why that the word is being used in this context, because for Alan Johnson, the Labour Party is something he doesn't recognize anymore. It's something other. And that's what gives it that cultic impression for him. At least that's how I perceive it. He may disagree, of course. Um, but uh, th- that's my perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of calls back to the idea of, you know, when is something called and labeled as, you know, a religion while another thing is labeled as a cult? It's because of what the outside majority culture kind of sees as acceptable versus unacceptable. Mm. It's also the idea of rationality versus irrationality. And that if you, if you support Donald Trump, then you're being irrational. Or if you, if you, if you're a member of momentum, you're irrational. Or if you support Brexit, you're irrational. It's, it's largely now used as a dismissal compared to the anti-cult panic of the 1970s and the 1980s when you had movements like the anti-cult movement, for example. Um, they, that they became very engaged with the idea of eradicating cults from society, that they saw them as a genuine cultic influence on members of our society. But here I it's it's almost it, it it's now it's now a, a form of language more than it is a perspective of society in that it's used almost as an insult. 
Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I mean, all the things pinging through my brain. I've just been, uh, we had the, the recent television adaptation of Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose, um, which has been screening on BBC uh, the last couple of months. And the final episode we just watched just last night uh, on the iPlayer. And uh, there you have this notion again of uh, uh, very that postmodern, you know, we, we cloak ourselves in rationality in the language of correct uh, to fling against those who are hurting us from within. And uh, uh, we get that very dangerous suggestion from Echo's character at the end about, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the ephemerally, ephemeral quality of any of these received truths. Uh, now, you know, is imagining characters um, really before the Enlightenment pushed these ideas into uh, uh, a mainstream subtle understanding of rationality, but it's just, it was, it's interesting to think of these, uh, these pairings and analogs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so on a slightly connected note, then I kind of wanted to bring up an article that I found interesting, um, which is from the guardian on Greta Thunberg. Uh, It was kind of inspired by uh, the recent Trump quote uh, because she was made person of the year and he made a comment about how she was just uh, a teenager with anger management issues. Um, and the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because I've been, I've been thinking a lot about Greta and uh, other aspects of popular culture. And, and in fact, doing slightly the opposite of what we've just been talking about uh, in the idea of applying certain religious languages to aspects of popular culture um, whenever I read or think about Greta, I start thinking about whether or not she could be considered um, and labeled as a prophet. Um, mm. You know, whether or not we can uh, understand her through this religious language and whether or not that reveals more about her. Uh, the article itself is about her anger and how it's very directed anger. Um, and therefore, you know, people who are a bit older might really struggle of understanding that her anger is there, but it's it's directed and pinpointed rather than just everywhere. Um, mm. And her response to criticisms of people from people like uh, Jeremy Clarkson and and Trump, where she typically responds by changing her Twitter bios to uh, reflect what they had said about her, um, rather than reacting against it. But then when she's obviously uh, in front of people and talking about the environment, she's obviously very angry. Um, so talking about that directed anger, um, but it kind of made me think about the role of charisma um, in, in regards yeah. to leaders like this and how, you know, there's something about her that makes you want to follow her, that makes you want to listen to her, that makes you inspired when she starts talking. Um, even people who disagree with her, I think, feel that way. Um, so how much can we use religious language in describing her or is it something that we should refrain from doing? I think you very much could apply that to um, Greta and I think it would also be a very good way of understanding her popularity and the way that she has rallied enthusiasm, particularly amongst the younger generation, as you were saying, that directed anger towards uh, the establishment or the older establishment. Um, but she has several facets to her that makes, that make her a charismatic leader. The first one obviously being her intelligence and her eloquence with being able to pinpoint her criticism. But also her youth is very relatable for younger generations. And, um, what you were saying about changing her Twitter bio, 
um, I saw someone on the news, I can't remember who it was, but someone on the news said a few weeks ago um, that uh, Donald Trump and so on shouldn't try to take on a teenager on the internet because they will <laughs> always win because because of the memes. And uh, that that's their home turf and they will always find a way to one-up you. And and that's absolutely true with those uh, Twitter bios. So she also, she goes viral with that. So many people retweet her Twitter bios and then that helps get her message out there as well. So there's, it isn't just a case of the people have rallied to her message. They've rallied to her as a figure. She's, the, the fact that she's uh, Asperger's, for example, the fact that she has done the um, uh, school climate strikes every Friday, uh, for over a year, she's she's very driven, and that that seems to have resonated with um, people who support her. Not just younger generations, you know, she's got support uh, across all age groups. But um, her charisma seems to come from the fact that she is an ordinary teenage girl who has used her platform and has used her enthusiasm to get her message out there. So I think the idea of charismatic leaders is a very good way of discussing uh, Greta Thunberg because um, that, that is, that is how she's getting her message out there. You know, she, as you were saying, she's just one time person of the year. I think anybody who wins a title like that tends to have charisma of some sort, but it also shows that she is as equally popular as her message is. I do think that, uh, and I'm interested in Greta from a media perspective, uh, and think about how much media uh, practices have allowed her to get the prominence that she has, first in terms of what she was doing, which was a very small, very localized protest. But it had those kind of qualities that, you know, journalists just love, right? There's a visual element to it. There's a narrative that you can bombard with sort of the emotional aspects of it, this one young person, this dedication of coming out on this protest that starts to grow and grow. And, and that um, has allowed her story to, to carry forward in a way that uh, other protests that are similarly informed and similarly angry and similarly, we might even say correct in terms of their assessment of the, the, the threat that is facing the planet have not been able to do. Uh, so the, the, the media dynamics are important in why she has managed to, well, to make use of that charisma, I guess. Uh, but when you mentioned Alan about her social media following, it, it does have me just slightly kind of, I raise my eyebrow a bit because I think about all the, activity that was on social media uh, in this last election campaign here in Britain. And it amounted to not the impact that the people behind those campaigns are about. And, you know, you can take on the teenager on the internet and lose, but when it comes to the ballot box and the people who are going to then sit in power for five years and make decisions about the trajectory of a country, signing agreements and allowing businesses to do or not do certain practices, that is a different kind of power. And regardless, perhaps, of the conservatives' inabilities in those environments, they succeeded. And they succeeded in ways that will now allow them a free hand for a long time. Yes, I agree. There's certainly an element of Twitter being an echo chamber. And uh, particularly um, for environmentalists or those on the left. Um, So whether that she can translate that into actual change is another matter. Um, but what you were saying about the visual element that the media have been able to take from that, 
that I think she has become she's been vilified in the press, of course, but um, certain parts of the press have also uh, really taken yeah. to her and to her message. And I think part of that is that idea of one young woman versus the world. As you say, you know, there was this grassroots campaign, very localized, and she's managed to take that now to a global scale. And from a, a clickbait perspective, what gets people reading your articles when it's something about a person or something about a personality like like Greta in this case, people tend to be more likely to read that than they are another article about environmental statistics that tells you everything is terrible and some and something that might be a bit of a turn off because it's just hard data. Um, Greta gives a story. There's this story of this young woman who's managed to get her message out onto a global scale and has found a global platform. And that's a way of getting the environmental message out there alongside it. But um, whether she'll uh, uh, succeed, as you were saying, at, like at the ballot box with the conservatives, is another matter. It's it's a start, yeah, though, I think for sure. For sure. And I, I guess the the if you were to ask Greta herself, she would say that she's not trying to have any electoral success. Uh, she doesn't even feel like she's the one with all the ideas. She's saying, pay attention to people who know these things. Uh, she's turning the yeah. attention to where she sees it being most valuable, which is, you know, in the in those hard data that we find difficult perhaps to digest uh, while we're reading the, the, the newspapers, uh, you know, uh, on the train or the tube or over a breakfast or whatever it may be. Um, and finding that dense numbers and gloomy mm. outlook uh, a turnoff. Uh, she's just saying, I'm not turned off by this. I'm highly turned on by this because this is so important. It's unlike anything else that we can be uh, valuing. So let's pay attention. Mm. Yes, because it's also pointing out that idea that so many people read news articles now from their tablet or their mobile phone that even when a BBC News article, for example, is shared on social media, it tends to come with a little caption that says three men read or four men read. You know, it even tells you now how long it's going to take yeah. you to get through it. Um, so people want digestible information. And I think Greta has made that digestible. But as you were saying, she is pointing to wider issues. And uh, hopefully people will take that on mm -hmm. board. Well, I think we have a bit more time to do maybe one more story. So I thought we would go with uh, Michael's second one. Um, so do you want to kind of sum it up for us and, and have us discuss it? Sure. Well, very happily, uh, Reuters tells us this is a five-min read. So uh, that wasn't too <laughs> demanding, I hope. Uh, it's an article by Aaron Ross uh, about this story that's coming out of the International Court of Justice just right now. Uh, this regards the case that the Gambia is putting forward about uh, genocide in Myanmar against the Rohingya people. And uh, this is a story that I've been actually paying attention to for a long time. Uh, I, you know, you almost wanted the T-shirts. So I was, I was concerned about the Rohingya before other people were concerned about the Rohingya. But you know, that is just a, uh, it's we don't play those kind of games. But uh, certainly, I would say that there was a watershed moment in 2016 with uh, again Reuters. Uh, doing a very uh, impressive amount of journalism in partnership with some local journalists from Thailand about uh, the situation down there where you have uh, in Myanmar or Burma uh, a majority Buddhist nation 
um, and we were almost a sort of a state religion of Buddhism there, but there's a, a, a minority population in the northwest corner close to the Bangladesh border who are um, of a different ethnicity within the population and also tend to follow uh, Islam rather than Buddhism. And there's been just incredible violence, incredible disruption, incredible uh, movements of people out uh, to refugee camps in Bangladesh to just uh, to free themselves. And the question is how much of this is down to local groups and how much of it is supported and sponsored perhaps uh, and even perpetrated by members of the, the, the military or local forces. So to what extent does the state of Myanmar have in it? That's the background of the story. Uh, and since that Reuters report from 2016, we saw Barack Obama, we saw uh, Pope Francis highlighting this story in ways that uh, it hadn't been before. So what's happened now is that the foreign minister for the Gambia has uh, brought forward a case on behalf of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation to uh, basically call out Myanmar for genocide against the Rohingya people. And this is a profile of the foreign minister, a gentleman whose name is Abu Bakar Tambadu. And so we learn a bit about him and why I thought it'd be interesting for this piece is that obviously religion is so bound up in the story about the religious dimensions to the conflict. Uh, it's sometimes referred to sort of ethnic cleansing. And yet we highlight that it's this Buddhist versus Muslim uh, um, prosecution going on. Um, so that the Gambia, which is a Muslim majority nation, is making its case with the support of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So here you've got a wider global body that is, uh, well, they call themselves, you know, the collective voice of the Muslim world. You've got a very sort of, you know, it's a, a, a UN type organization specific for the Ummah, you might say. Uh, and they are supporting this bid. Um, the Gambia is very small. Uh, it's a sub-Saharan Africa and um it's hard to, to think of them being sort of a, a global player, uh, and yet they've been put into this global spotlight uh, very compellingly. The profile of him does note these religious dimensions to it, but there's a, a line again that we talk about the personal within this. Uh, um, towards the end, we say that uh, Tambadu, a devout Muslim with a prominent prayer bump on his forehead, acknowledged that Islamic solidarity was a factor behind Gambia and the OIC's actions, but said, Quote, this is about our humanity, ultimately. So we've had calls for this Islamic solidarity in the case of the Rohingya and also recently as well in the case of the Uyghur populations of China. Historically, we might have seen that regarding the Palestinians. This is that, that global case that we'd always look to in terms of that uniting element that would bring Muslims worldwide in, in, in out in some kind of sense of unity for the, the concern of their, their fellow believers. Um, so the, the religious particularity of the solidarity has been present there. And uh, more recently in the last time, actually that the, uh, the international court of justice was called to ask about questions like these uh, had to do with the uh, massacre in Srebrenica. So Yugoslavia, the Bosnian uh, populations there, and again, religion being a dimension of the, the, the conflict and the suffering. This seems to be a, a route people can take. But they are stepping back from that and taking a, a broader approach, trying to maybe make it 
appeal more broadly by saying this is not about Muslim suffering, this is about people suffering, and we need to defend them. Uh, so it is along religious lines that the solidarities have been built up, but now that the case is brought before the Court of Justice, they are not appealing primarily on the grounds of religion. I find that interesting. I, I generally found it interesting when I first started paying attention to what was going on in Myanmar and thinking about whether global attention to their plight was slow because they were a Muslim population as victims of oppression. And we so often hear in news narratives and political narratives about uh, Muslims being the aggressors, Muslims are the terrorists, Muslims are the ones, you know, blowing up uh, buildings and crashing airplanes and that kind of thing. And so we need to be fearful of them. And instead, this is a, a drawing on sympathy of your average reader who wouldn't know about these situations. And so uh, that I wondered, I've always wondered if that's why the story has been slow to get the public imagination. And if that maybe is a dimension in why the case is being prosecuted the way it is, or why the the, the person who's championing this is articulating it the way he's doing it. On that note of solidarity for fellow humans rather than solidarity for particular faiths, how successful has it been since that shift, would you say? Well, it was a headline story last week, and uh, it remains so, at least here in Britain, over several days. And I was compelled that, I mean, the other, you want know, to talk about storylines and sort of the way we discussed how Greta Thunberg's qualities made her unique and interesting for journalists in a way that other stories didn't. The, the narratives here, the switch between Aung San Suu Kyi, who was a champion of human rights uh, 25 years ago um, in Myanmar, then goes in wearing the hat of the Myanmar state and defending its actions against this call of genocide. As, a, as, a, as an active agent, an activist in the cause, you can certainly draw on that storyline. It interested me that as the... the, the couple of days unfolded of these these court discussions that that straight up news reporting that I was hearing on the radio um, used those exact same narratives. So I would say it's been successful in that it has landed the story uh, globally to focus not on the interreligious dimensions of it or specifically about Muslims mm. are suffering and we need to help them. But that this is a human issue and this is a human failure and that this champion of human rights is now supporting people who are uh, absolutely tarnishing those rights and ignoring them. Uh, so I, I think that it has succeeded in allowing the story to surface. Um, so that I think that has been savvy. And I, I, I think about this when I teach religion in the news for undergraduates here at Cardiff and we'll, we'll talk about um, the the difference between how uh, some minority traditions emerge in the news, such as uh, Islam or Buddhism, Judaism, when it is uh, discussed in media sense there and there, we'll talk about, you know, the, the, the oppression that Jewish people might have suffered in certain contexts. We'll talk about anti-Semitism, but the appeal is less, well, strategically, it's less about the Jewish people are suffering, but our humanity demands that we do better. Um, and that seems to be a, a conscious effort on the part of uh, Jewish activists not to foreground the specific 
religious uh, difficulties, but that the world owes it to its people. The people owe it to the world's people uh, to do better. Um, and so it, it, this may be a, a sense of a maturing of the voice beyond, and I, I, I hear I'm about to say the phrase and I don't like it, but it's beyond identity politics to something that people can attach to in a broader sense. So is this a sense that, uh, that as these Muslim voices are organizing themselves more and prosecuting their cases and making claims for their own suffering, that they're learning things that are allowing them to be more effective in speaking their complaints to a global audience. It makes me wonder as well, um, is there a us us and them element to how the media reports things is it is it more appealing for the media to report on something from a humanist humanistic perspective rather than this interreligious conflict i i mean i don't know because it's there they remain so often kind of the touchstones that the journalists will fall upon to summarize very succinctly what is going on it's you know we saw that in one well, in innumerable that uh interreligious conflicts globally. I mean, you think about Northern Ireland and we just know that as it's the Protestants and the Catholics. And so that's kind of, is a, that's an easy with just a couple of words, the journalists have accomplished a lot. Now we might also say they've, they've washed a lot of nuance away in that process. And we might ask them to be more specific in how they do it. But, you know, the answer is that the, the, the media needs for brevity, clarity, uh, push, that nuance the side to get the message out in the mix of lots of other news stories that apparently also demand our attention. So I think that journalists themselves are very uh, favorable to framing it as Buddhist on Muslim violence in Southeast Asia. You can accomplish a lot and kind of move on from there. Uh, so this strategy is demanding something different. And I'll, I think that on a, person-to-person level, we might be more intrigued and sympathetic to that wider humanist discourse. It doesn't make the journalist's job a lot easier. Well, I guess it depends on the readership. Sorry, Vivian. No, no, it's all right. I was just going to wrap it up. So any last thoughts? Definitely get them out there. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm encouraged at how the, the story has uh, been able to be a, a global story, and uh, uh, we'll see what the outcome of this particular case is and what it means, among other things, for uh, the, the Gambia coming out of uh, you know a couple of decades of rule by a single leader into a, emerging into a We hear about sort of these sort of differing uh, uh, African uh, countries growing past the regimes that were based around one personality, and so is this nation able to show something about how you use your your power and influence as a small power in in a big stage yeah i think there's been a running theme in this conversation as well that's um to do with communication whether it's how the media communicates um details of conflicts in other countries or how um, Greta Thunberg is able to communicate her ideas using a certain platform or other people are able to communicate their distaste or displeasure at a political figure or a political movement through use of cultic language in, the, in that these conversations tend to be have uh, notably been about how people get their ideas across to other audiences 
and whether changing tactics makes it more effective for them. Mm-hmm. With power, the location of power still being obviously the, the the magic ingredient behind it all. That, but you know, we can't measure success in our own short timescales either. Mm. Well, thank you both for joining us on Discourse. Do you want to do a quick, um, if anyone's interested in knowing more about you guys and what research you are doing, how you're using social media in your own utilization, um, anything like that that you want to plug? Do you want to start, Michael? Sure. Well, I tweet fairly actively uh, and I can be found at Michael Munnick, um, my Twitter account. It's M-U-N-N-I-K. Some people like put in the C, but I'll just mention it's M-U-N-N-I-K. Uh, and I'm on Twitter there, often tweeting about uh, Islam in the news or religion in the news um, and sociological elements generally. And uh, my p- profile page at Cardiff University will have links to research as well. Um, I, I can also be found on Twitter at uh, Alad J-L-L Thomas. Uh, I also talk about uh, contemporary religion, contemporary religion stories, uh, but with a uh, particular emphasis on new religions, which is uh, my research interests. Uh, I have an academia profile as well, where you could see uh, some of my research in that regard. And I also run a blog called Holy Scriptures of the Shopping Mall.com. Um, so f- feel free to check it out. Any feedback is also appreciated. Um, so yeah, hopefully find you on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'm also on Twitter, like most academics, I think, uh, at Vivian Asimo. So you should just look up how to spell my name. Um, <laughs> I also have a website, god-mode.org, where I get to talk about religion and popular culture. I also have a podcast on there as well. Um, so thank you all for joining me. And do we do a little round of thanks for listening? Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to do this. I hope people find the conversation useful and stimulating or Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with what Michael says. <laughs> oh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you thanks. for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening google plus <laughs> doesn't exist anymore nope